Thank you for tuning into this webinar, 1099 Compliance in 2023, prepared by year in 2022. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and HR professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Cindy McSwain. Cindy leads AGH's Outsourcing Services Group. Her team provides payroll, accounting, funds disbursement, controller, and other financial outsourcing services to numerous clients throughout the central U.S. Prior to directing the outsourcing group, Cindy served AGH's assurance clients for 10 years, working with a wide range of middle market, closely held, and family-owned clients. Cindy's a certified public accountant and a member of both the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Kansas Society of Certified Public Accountants. Although they can seem complicated and tedious, 1099 forms are an essential part of tax reporting client compliance. This webinar provides updates on common questions about 1099, such as deadlines, who must receive a 1099, exceptions to the rules, and the penalties for non-compliance. Join Cindy for a review of the rules and tips to stay on track. All right. Um, it's great to be back with you guys, and welcome to today's webinar. Uh, this is actually the first in a series of three webinars. We kind of do these every year. Um, these webinars kind of are our year-end series. So today we're going to cover 1099s. And then we have a webinar that also covers specifically just fringe benefits from the payroll perspective. That's going to be on December 1st. And then we also have a webinar just on the um, overall year-end payroll reporting. And that's scheduled for December 15th. And you can hop over to um, our AGH University website and register for um, either or both of those. Um, you know, if, if you guys have, I, I looked at the attendee list and I see a lot of people who have uh, kind of attended these over the years. I see some new names on there as well. So um, we're pretty much covering the same things that we cover every year, uh, but we only do this once a year. And so it's always kind of a nice refresher just to make sure that we're kind of ready um, and getting up and going. Uh, so today, I'm going to cover the various information reporting forms, some of the requirements, filing deadlines, uh, the penalties that are out there that I know I've, I've, I've gotten emails from some of you about notices that have come out, and then some, some just best general practices for preparing, uh, excuse me, preparing for the filing season. So let's start with what's new uh, for the upcoming filing season in 2023. So once again this year, there really aren't many changes. Um, coming, uh, nothing significant that's going to make great big impacts, but uh, let's just run through these anyway. Um, the Taxpayer First Act of 2019, it was actually enacted in July of 2019, so you know, three years ago. That authorized the Department of Treasury and the IRS to uh, go out and issue regulations that reduced the 250 return requirement. Um, if final regulations are issued, I just have to say this as a caveat, um, it might change the threshold for um, electronic filing. I don't anticipate any more regs coming out on this uh, this year. So I think that'll that'll just be kind of a carryover for next year. Uh, that has to do with the uh, W-2 filing requirements as well on an on electronic basis. But I don't think we have any change yet. Uh, electronic filing of the 1099s, uh, there is a new internet portal that will allow taxpayers to electronically file 1099s uh, for the 2023 filing season, so coming up in January. Um, there is a new 1098F form 
uh, again, I don't think it's going to affect um, many of us. It's for fines, penalties, and other amounts, and that's to report payments that are made under suits, lawsuits, and agreements, which are binding on or after the 1st of 2022. Um, that form was actually released in 2019, and it's primarily for governments and non-governmental entities that exercise self-regulatory powers. Um, the last one listed here is for continuous use. Um, a number of the forms, including the 1099 miscellaneous and the NEC, as well as uh, 1098, 1099A, 1099C, dividends, 1099G, interest, and the Ks and the Ss, and their instructions have been converted from annual updates. So normally the IRS is going to put out every year new instructions and every year a new form. Um, they've actually converted all those to continuous use updates. And so that means that the form itself and the instructions are going to be updated as needed. So that might be more frequently or less frequently than, than annually. So again, not, not a whole lot there that is going to impact this. So I always like to start by going through the, the forms themselves. I'm not going to touch on every single one of these, um, but I think it's just important to have them in front of you um, so that you can look and you can read through the titles of the forms and go, ooh, I never thought that that might be required, so maybe I need to look into that. So it's really just general information. The bulk of my webinar today is going to focus on that non-employee compensation and form and the miscellaneous uh, compliance form because those are the two most commonly filed forms. Um, but I like to re uh, refer to all of this as alphabet soup because basically you can just go down the alphabet and there's a there's a form for every letter. This first page here are the ones that I run into most frequently. And um, oh, by the way, you can download these slides for the presentation and, um, and then you can go back and revisit the presentation itself in our archives later if you want to look at this list again. So, you know, don't be jotting all this down. Um, but if you make payments in any of these categories, you know, I really do kind of uh, recommend that you do a little bit more research to determine if you're required to file something. Here are some of the additional forms in the 1099 series of returns. Uh, most of these are a little less commonly used, or maybe they are uh, used for, uh, for example, the 1099K. Um, most entities don't use those. Those are usually done by a third-party network company. Um, now we kind of get out of the 1099 series. Uh, the 1099 series represents amounts that are potentially or typically picked up as taxable income by that recipient. When we move into the 1098, that family reports payments that are made by the recipient instead of to the recipient, as well as some additional forms. Um, like I said earlier, new this year is that 1098F form for fines, penalties, and other amounts. Um, it may impact some of you, but I don't think it's uh, going to impact a lot of you. And then we have even more, um, you know, now we get out of the 1099 and out of the 1098 series. Retirement plan and various saving plan contributions, those also require information returns. And last but not least, we're required to report gambling winnings and wages and related taxes. So, um, you know, if you're the winner of that great big Powerball lottery that's out there, uh, you're going to get something reported. Uh, and this list doesn't even include the forms that are required under uh, the Affordable Care Act. We're going to touch briefly on that uh, in our year-end uh, payroll webinar. 
So I always just kind of like to throw up what the most recent uh, 1099 form looks like. And this is the, the latest continuous use format of the 1099 NEC for non-employee compensation. Um, very little change was made other than those necessary to convert the form to that continuous use format. Uh, some minor wording changes were made to some of the on-form instructions, but otherwise nothing su substantive. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward form. It only contains boxes for non-employee compensation and any taxes withheld. Uh, and it's due to both that, to your recipients and to the IRS by the end of January, no matter if you file on paper or electronically. This is the other most commonly used form, the 1099 miscellaneous. Uh, this one also has been converted into a continuous use form. Uh, the way you can kind of tell that is if you look up there at the date in the upper right-hand corner, it used to have a great big, you know, 2022 up there, and now it's kind of a, a 20 blank. Um, this is this form's due to the recipient also by the end of January, but this one's not due to the IRS until the end of February, or if you're uh, filing electronically the end of March. Uh, there, there was one change on here. Uh, box number 13 has now been assigned to the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, or FATCA, uh, filing require, requirement checkbox. And so subsequently, uh, the old boxes, number 13 through 17, have been renumbered um, and uh, went one up. So now we have 18 boxes as opposed to 17 last year. So depending on how you're submitting and, and what kind of form, um, data that you're using, you may need to renumber some of that. I also always like to share resources, and the best overall resource that I've found for year-end information is actually on the IRS website. Uh, there are, there's a set of general instructions for information returns as well as in separate instructions for each form type. And so I've, I've listed those most commonly used ones here again. Um, I've also put up here IRS Publication 1220 because it's a good resource related to the electronic filing of information returns. Uh, the instructions for each form really are the best resource for answering questions about what is and is not reportable. And, and so when I get emails and calls from many of you and I respond, a lot of times I'm taking verbatim out of the instructions um, here because there's just not, there's, there's, there's uh, laws and regulations out there, but these instructions really cover cover most everything that's out there. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of more IRS publications related to penalties a little bit later as we go. So here is a snippet I've kind of cut and pasted a little bit. Uh, this is a chart that's in the back of the general instruction book for 1099s. Um, the whole chart's actually three pages long, and it lists absolutely every type of form, kind of back like I did on that alphabet soup slide. Um, it includes what the reporting requirements are, the thresholds, and the due dates. And so, again, this is really a great place to start if you're just trying to get a for what might be required. It gives a little more information than what I had on that on those earlier slides. So let's now kind of move into what types of payments are required to report be reported. And again, I know. Um, that many of you who have done 1099s year after year after year, you're, you're pretty familiar with this. 
but it seems every year I get a few um, people that are fairly new um, in this webinar, so I always like to kind of return to the basics, and um, you know maybe you'll pick something up that you hadn't thought about. So you know where where do we start? I think that's the biggest question. You know how do we eat how do we eat this elephant? Um, we start by looking at absolutely all the payments that are made in the course of your trader business. What's our entire payment population? And then we're going to start peeling off of that. Um, so what's a trader business? You're, in a, you're engaged in a trader business if you operate for a gain or profit. So that means personal payments aren't reportable. So individuals, unless you're operating a trader business, don't need to worry about this. Um, but for this purpose, uh, nonprofit organizations are considered to be engaged in a trader business and are subject to the reporting requirements, um, as well as payments that are made by federal, state, local government agencies. Okay, so yeah, Cindy, sure, we start with all the payments, but where do we find those? What, what are you talking about? What do you mean? So all the payments, a lot of those are going to reside in your accounts payable system. Um, that's going to include any manual checks. They're going to um, be in your payroll system. That may not be somewhere where you normally look for this, as well as being electronically uh, processed through your bank accounts and credit cards. And so it depends how you get those entered into your system. But basically, it's anything that's going out of your bank account. So this gives us our entire population, and now let's start kind of peeling off some of those exceptions and everything um, er, everything else. So here are things that are not reportable. Payments to a corporation, including a liab limited liability company or an LLC, that is treated as an C or subchapter S corporation. Those don't have to be reported, um, even though they might be taxable to the recipient. But we even have an exception to that exception. So payments that are listed here in um, in the box to the right, uh, those do have to be reported, even if they're paid to a corporation. Um, we're going to discuss some of these same payments later as well. But the biggest ones that I usually see are um, attorney fees and medical and health care payments. Um, whether or not that's a corporation, uh, those still need to be paid to. So a lot of times I'll start with my entire list of um, of payments going out, and I, some days it's actually pen and paper, um, you know, just start crossing off or deleting anything that's been made to a corporation. That gets rid of a lot of them. Um, additional exceptions uh, include payments that are for merchandise, so inventory, uh, telegrams, telephone, freight storage, uh, and similar items. Uh, rent that's paid to real estate agencies, uh, real estate agents, that's also not reportable, but the real estate agent is then the one responsible for using 1099 miscellaneous to report any of the rent that they paid over to the end property owner. Um, you can also then pull out any employee wage payments um, because those are reportable on a W-2 and not a 1099. But we still need to look because sometimes we have people paying through their payroll systems, other types of um, other types of payments. So we at least need to look there and consider them. Employee expense reimbursements, those are excluded from 1099 reporting as well. Uh, but keep in mind, those might re be reportable as compensation on a W-2, especially if there's not an accountable plan in place. Um, not going to talk about that much here today, but we're going to cover that in more detail in our year-end fringe benefits webinar. 
Also excluded are payments that are made to tax-exempt organizations, and that's going to include tax-exempt trusts. Those will be things like your IRAs, your health savings account, your medical saving accounts, and your educational savings accounts. Um, also payments to the United States, a state, the District of Columbia, U.S. possession, or foreign government. More exceptions, uh, credit card merchant processors and third-party network transaction processors are the ones who are responsible for reporting uh, the, the credit card uh, payments. Those are reportable on a Form 1099-K. Canceled debt transactions are reportable on a 1099-C for organizations that are in the trade or business of lending money. So uh, this question comes up frequently too. If you're not in the trade or business of lending money, then you're not required to report canceled debt. Um, however, it might be considered, again, compensation if you forgive an employee loan. So just because it's not reportable one place doesn't mean it might not be reportable in another place. So a lot of exceptions there. So as a recap, we're going to start with the entire population. We're going to go dig around and figure out where all those payments live. Um, and then we're going to start removing any of the exceptions. The big one, exceptions, again, being payments to corporations, payments for merchandise, utilities, and employee wages, uh, but also payments for things like expense reimbursements, credit card payments, uh, and various various other things. However, again, just so now that we've removed, um, we've looked at our in, entire population, we've removed our exceptions, so we think we know which payments might be subject, um, the next piece we need to look at are the thresholds. So just because, you know, they're an eligible recipient doesn't mean they meet the threshold to actually get the, the 1099. So now, thresholds are pretty small. So some of these thresholds are as low as $10, while others are $600 before reporting is required. Um, a couple of the less commonly used types actually have no thresholds, and in those cases, everything's reportable. So Make sure that you know those thresholds for the different types of payments. Uh, the general threshold for reporting interest, dividends, and retirement plan distributions is only $10. Uh, but if you're making, you know, very nominal payments out of there, uh, there is a $10 is the de minimis there. Uh, for 1099 miscellaneous, there's a $10 threshold for reporting gross royalties, broker payments in lieu of dividends, or tax-exempt interest. Um, then we get to the $600 threshold. Um, that's used for mortgage interest, cancellation debt, as well as most of the payments that are reported on the non-employee compensation and the miscellaneous form. Uh, non-employee compensation includes payments for services that are performed for a trade or business by people who are not treated as your uh, employees. So, independent contractors is, is the language that's usually used for that, or outside service providers. Examples of amounts that are going to be recorded as non-employee compensation, that's going to include fees for professional services. Those are your attorneys, including corporations, um, accountants, architects, contractors, engineers, consultants. Um, also payments for other services, including parts and materials used to perform those services, if the supplying of those parts or materials was incidental to providing the service. Uh, commissions that are paid to independent contractors, uh, gross oil and gas payments for working interest, director's fees, uh, those are also all going to be reported as non-employee comp. 
Generally, amounts that are reportable as non-employee compensation to an individual that is typically subject to self-employment tax by the recipient. If those payments to excuse me, individuals are not subject to self-employment tax and they're not reportable anywhere else um, on 1099 miscellaneous, then report those payments in box three, which is other income on the miscellaneous form. Everything else reportable on the 1099 uh, miscellaneous form has a $600 threshold to include rents, prizes and awards, and other income payments. Those are the ones most commonly used. Uh, medical and healthcare payments include payments to a physician, a physician's corporation, or other supplier of health and medical services. That's not your health insurance because those are typically um, those are typically exempted. But this is more of the the practitioners, if you will. Um, these would be issued mainly by medical assistance programs or health and accident insurance programs. However, I've actually dealt with clients who. Um, they pay for the visits for their employees to go visit a minor emergency center or a doctor, um, you know, which would otherwise typically be covered under workers' comp claims. Uh, instead of using their insurer, they just send them directly to the to the medical practice and pay it directly. Uh, crop insurance proceeds are those uh, fees that are paid to farmers by insurance companies, uh, with a few exceptions there. So there are times when there are no dollar thresholds, and that's going to be for payments to crew members by owners, uh, operators of fishing boats. Uh, reporting is required for anyone with backup holding, regardless of the amount of payment. So um, if you don't meet the threshold for the amount, but you had some backup withholding, you always, always have to uh, report that. And that's going to be true for both the miscellaneous and the non-employee comp forms. So I always like to stop here and address a frequently asked question about where do I report these payments to attorneys? Uh, because there's an attorney box on this form and then there's non-employee compensation. Um, you know, so what's the difference? So let's let's tackle that a little bit. The term attorney is going to include a law firm or other provider of legal services. Attorney fees of $600 or more that are paid in the course of your trade or business um, for legal services, those are reportable in box one of 1099 NEC as non-employee compensation. The box 10 on the miscellaneous form, um, it's titled gross proceeds paid to an attorney. That should be used for payments of $600 or more that are uh, made to an attorney in, in the course of your trade or business in connection um, with legal services, but not for the attorney services. So um, as an example, that's typically going to be in a settlement agreement. Uh, there's actually some examples uh, included in the instructions to the miscellaneous form that provide uh, further clarification. So if you're paying your attorney in the normal course of business for you know, general counsel and you know, legal fees for, for what they're helping you with, that goes on the NEC form. If it's settlement involved, that goes on the miscellaneous form. And again, a reminder uh, that the exemption from reporting payments that are made to a corporation does not apply to payments for legal services. So let's um, talk about some additional co um, considerations. If an employee dies during the year, 
you must report the accrued wages, vacation pay, other compensation paid after the date of death. Now, if you make the payment in the same year that the employee died, you're going to withhold Social Security and Medicare taxes on the payment, and you're going to report them only as Social Security and Medicare wages on the employee's Form W-2. This is going to ensure that the proper Social Security and Medicare credit is received. Uh, don't show any payment after the date of death in Box 1 of W-2. Then we're going to report the actual payment itself to the estate or the beneficiary in Box 3, other income of Form 1099 miscellaneous, because we're not actually paying it to that employee since they've been deceased. So now it becomes miscellaneous. Now, that changes a bit if you make the payment after the year of death. So employee dies in 2022 and you don't make the payment until 2023. Don't report it anywhere on the Form W-2 and don't withhold, do not withhold Social Security or Medicare taxes. Again, then you're going to report the payment to the estate or beneficiary in Box 3 of 1099 miscellaneous as other income. So it really kind of depends on the timing of, of when you make those payments. Uh, what about other death benefits? Uh, those benefits from non-qualified deferred comp plans are reportable on a 1099 miscellaneous. That's from non-qualified plans. While benefits from qualified plans should be made on a 1099-R. Another consideration is backup withholding. We're going to talk about that a little bit more when we cover penalties. Um, interest, dividends, rents, royalties, commissions, non-employee comp, certain other payments. Um, those might be subject to backup withholding at a rate of 24%. And that might apply if, um, in, in these circumstances, if the payee fails to furnish his or uh, her ID number, if they fail to certify that the ID number is correct, or if uh, the IRS notifies you to impose backup withholding because the payee furnished an incorrect uh, TIN, EIN, uh, for some reason or another. If you're required to apply backup withholding, uh, you have to report that withholding on both the 1099 miscellaneous form as well as a Form 945, which is the annual return of withheld federal income tax. So that reconciles everything for the IRS. Another thing that um, think about is the impact of uh, working globally today. Uh, we're all doing more and more work globally, so we need to, you know, always consider foreign contractors. And I'm, I get more and more questions about this one as well. I'm not going to go into much detail, but I, I, again, I just want to make you kind of aware of it. So if you're in that situation, you can ask more questions. As long as the foreign contractor is not a U.S. person and the services are fully performed outside of the U.S., then no 1099 is required and no withholding is required. Um, ask them to complete a Form W-8 that's comparable to a or similar to a W-9. By signing that Form W-8, the foreign contractor certifies that he or she is, A, not a U.S. person. Um, the Form W-8, just like the 9, is not filed with the IRS. You just keep that on file um, in case of uh, uh, audit. And if audited, that Form W-8 supports why you didn't issue a 1099 and why you didn't withhold tax. But what you do have to worry about is this. Payments to a foreign company that are provided inside of the U.S. So in other words, U.S. source income that's being paid to a foreign-based company. 
Again, we're going to use that Form W-8, and that's going to specify how much should be withheld. Uh, without this, the minimum required withholding is 30%. And additionally, you might need to issue a Form 1042 for information reporting purposes. That's a form that's similar to 1099s, but it's for foreign contractors. Um, and again, you know, my advice is always to um, reach out to your tax advisor if you're dealing in this matter to make sure that you're doing things the, um, the compliant way. So here is a chart. And again, this chart is in the back of that general instructions. And it's really a great place to just copy those three pages and tack it up somewhere or save it somewhere. Um, this, I, I've just added the most frequently forms here. Um, the non-employee comp form is due to both the recipient and the IRS by the end of January. That's the one big exception. Those non-employee comp forms um, must be to the IRS by the end of January. Uh, this is going to include both paper and electronic filings. So most of the miscellaneous forms, with just a few exceptions, those are also due to the recipient by the end of January, but not due to the IRS until the end of February or March, depending on filing type. And people say, well, why the heck would I wait if I've got them all done? Um, it's kind of nice if you don't have to file everything until um, on those miscellaneouses until uh, the end of February in case you have amendments or things like that. And that way um, you always have to give the, the corrected form to the recipient, but you can not have to necessarily make amended filings or corrected filings with the IRS if you wait a little bit. Um, for the most part, all the remaining 1099 series of returns, those are due to the recipient again by the end of January to the IRS by the end of February if you're filing in paper form or the end of March if electronically. Um, but again, make sure you, you check those instructions. Extensions are available for both providing state, statements to the recipients as well as filing with the IRS. I've actually gotten several questions about that here recently as well. I had um, a client that um, had a cybersecurity attack. And so they're in the process here at the end of the year, amongst all other, other things, um, kind of rebuilding their, their database and their systems. Um, you know, so they don't know if they're going to have everything back in place in time to, to meet that January 31st deadline. Um, you can request an extension of time to furnish statements to the recipients by sending a letter to the IRS. Again, look at the instructions for that form. Um, this year, that's a fax only communication. Again, the IRS is totally backed up and we don't know, you know, when they get around to opening mail. So they've turned that into a fax only. Um, the letter must include the payer name, TIN, address, type of return, uh, a statement that the extension request is for providing the statements to the recipients, a reason for the delay, and then a signature of the payer or authorized agent. Uh, that request has to be postmarked by the date when the statements are due to the recipients, so January 31st. Um, and this is not an automatic approval. Uh, if the request is approved, generally you'll be granted a maximum of 30 extra days. I laugh at this, though, because, um, you know, I can't even get the IRS to answer the phone right now because they're so backlogged. So if we send something in as an extension request on January 31st, we don't know if it'll be granted or not. Um, but make sure if, if you do are in that boat, make sure you go through all the appropriate protocol. Um, regarding an extension of time to file with the IRS, this one is an automatic. You can get an automatic 30-day extension of time by completing a Form 8809, and that can be submitted on paper or through the IRS's 
fire system. That's their online system. Uh, no signature or explanations needed for the extension. Um, however, you have to file that form by the due date of the returns in order to get that 30-day extension. And under certain hardship conditions, you can apply for an additional 30 days. That second 30-day one is not a guaranteed automatic. Uh, businesses must file. Let's talk about um, filing electronically or in paper. Um, businesses have to file the information returns with the IRS in electronic format. If you're required to file 250 or more information returns per type. Um, you can request a hardship waiver if you're unable to do this. Um, that is on a form 8508. That has to be filed at least 45 days before the due date of the return, and it's not automatic. Um, the electronic filing requirement applies separately to original forms and corrected forms, and again, by type. Don't forget, if you're filing on paper, to include the Form 1096 transmittal, and that needs to be a separate transmittal form per type of return. So one for your one for your uh, non-employee comps. So let's talk about um, lovely penalties and uh, the things that are going to get you in trouble. There's actually three different types of penalties. Uh, the first one is for failure to correct information returns by the due date. Failure to furnish correct payee statements and failure to file electronically. So the first penalty is for failure to file correct information returns by the due date. Uh, this penalty applies if you fail to file timely, you fail to include all the information required, or you include incorrect information on a return. The penalty also applies if you file on paper. Uh, when you're supposed to be required to file electronically, if you report an incorrect TIN or fail to include a TIN, um, or if you fail to file paper forms that are machine-readable. The amount of penalty is actually based on when you file, finally file the correct information. So if it's filed, in this case, if it's filed within correctly within 30 days, uh, then it's $50 per return, and they have caps over there on the maximum returns, but they're pretty stiff on the, on the maximums. Small businesses actually have a lower maximum cap uh, for this purpose. So small business is defined as having annual uh, average annual gross receipts for the past three years of $5 million or less. So every fall, and it just happened here in the last couple months, I receive phone calls and emails uh, regarding organizations that have received correspondence from the IRS with proposed penalties or missing uh, or incorrect taxpayer ID numbers. Um, so the penalties that are proposed in these notices come straight from this chart. This is how they're calculating them. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that because I know um, the IRS gets those out. That's on an automated system. Um, the second penalty is the failure to furnish correct payee statements. So one is the first one is failure to file with the IRS. This is failure to um, give the recipients their statements correctly. Uh, it, this is a separate and additional penalty to the first one. However, it's applied in the exact same manner. So in most cases, if you file with the IRS, you have likely provided the recipient with a copy or vice versa. Sometimes that's not true, um, but in most cases. So if you haven't done either, the penalty is basically double, and now you're looking at $100 per form if uh, you get it fixed within 30 days. So if there's intentional disregard, which means 
eh, I just blew it off, didn't know about it, um, just didn't file. You know, the, the combined penalties between these two could be $1,160 performance. And now we're talking some pretty steep penalties. An average, fairly small business can have around 10 forms. Um, you know, that our poll at the beginning said there were some with 10. Most people are doing between 10 and 250. Um, so if this is completely disregarded, uh, that, you know, easily could be facing a penalty or, uh, over $10,000. And so we're starting to talk some, some money now. Um, the third penalty that sits out there is for failure to file electronically if you're required to do so. This penalty is up to $290 per form for each one over 200, the first 249 forms. And again, this applies separately to um, each type of form and originally filed and corrected returns. So I have listed here some exceptions to these penalties. Um, you know, the biggest one is reasonable cause and that we didn't have will, willful neglect. You can prove this if you can show that your failure was due to an event beyond your control or due to significant mitigating factors. You're also going to have to show that you acted in a responsible manner and you took steps to avoid that failure. Um, inconsequential error or omission, that's not considered a failure to include correct information. This is going to be an error that doesn't prevent or hinder the IRS from processing the return or from, you know, actually correlating the information with the payee's tax return. Now, errors and omissions that are never considered inconsequential are those that relate to a TIN, uh, payee's surname, or any um, monetary amount. There's also a de minimis rule for corrections. Uh, this is available for filers who filed the information returns on time and either failed to include all the information required or included incorrect information and filed corrections by August 1. Um, so if all three of those conditions are met, the penalty for filing incorrect returns won't apply to the greater of 10 returns or half of 1% of the total number of returns. Um, so if you're filing a lot, it's not going to be of much help. Um, the conditions there are if the difference between the dollar amount reported and the correct amount is no more than $100, and the difference between the amount reported for tax withheld and the correct amount is no more than $25. Um, the, the safe harbor provision does not apply if a recipient elects or requests to receive a corrected statement. So in that case, um, even if it's the minimus, by definition, a corrected return has to be filed with the IRS and a corrected statement has to be furnished to the recipient. More work, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about all these notices that have been coming out this fall. Um, each year, uh, actually twice a year, in October and then the following April, uh, the IRS sends out what they call CP2100 notices. If you look up in the upper right hand corner of the letter, it will actually say like letter type or something like that, CP2100. Um, these notices let pay taxpayers know that they might be responsible for backup holding when the uh, taxpayer ID numbers are missing from IRS records or they're not matching, et cetera. So it's usually accompanied by a list of missing, incorrect, and are not uh, currently issued TINs. So you can see exactly what they're looking at. So here's the question I get all the time. Okay, I got this letter, uh, what do I do with it? So the very first thing is you need to sit down and compare your internal records to the information provided in that notice. 
a lot of times you don't have to do anything if you have the information right that you use. Um, if it's a missing or obviously incorrect TIN, uh, you know, they, they want you to start considering backup withholding um, immediately. If it's a clerical error, um, you don't need to do anything but use the correct information for future 1099 filings. Um, I worked with an organization that, uh, for some reason, when we picked up stuff in the in the EIN data field to file these electronically, picked up a wrong box, and so they were obviously not social security numbers or TINs in that field. But we have the right ones on hand, so that's a clerical error, and so nothing needed to be done in that case. Um, if it's an incorrect name and um, number combination, is no clerical error then there's these B notices that you have to send up and send out. And B stands for backup withholding. Um, you have to send those notices out to each payee uh, that has an incorrect combination of name and number within 15 business days of the date that you receive that letter. Um, and there's, there's the first round that you have to send out. And there's a second round that you can send out if they're not responding. And there's very specific instructions as to how to do that and what needs to be included in those letters. Um, and then it's possible if you don't get anything back, then you have to start backup withholding uh, if, if they don't respond or the response is incomplete. So, you know, if you're in that situation, make sure that, you know, you start looking at some instructions um, to figure out what those, those need to look like. What instructions are you talking about, Cindy? <laughs> um, so these two publications here are uh, extremely helpful, and those are also out on the IRS's website. Publication 1281, that contains the information about backup withholding requirements that apply to the information returns that you file. It also contains copies of what those, those, those first and second rounds of those B notices or correspondence to the recipients should look like. So go there, copy and paste, it's a wonderful thing. Um, publication 1586, that provides general information needed to avoid penalties relating, relating to these situations and describes the actions to take to actually go out and solicit some of that stuff. Again, it's where I, where I get all my content and all my answers um, to provide to you guys. So the last thing we need to look at, um, it's important to understand the filing requirements of each state. Um, there is the combined file, federal state filing program out there. It was established to simplify uh, the returns through the program. The IRS electronically forwards certain information returns to those participating states. However, um, some collabor collaborating states nonetheless require people to still file with state directly. Some states have no filing requirement for information returns, and some states that do have requirements that don't uh, participate in that CFSF program. Additionally, thresholds for electronic re filing requirements or even payment amounts might be different than the federal requirements. So um, make sure that you you look at that. Um, so let's talk about um, how we should get ready and for the task of filing those returns. Here are some of the tasks that can be handled most anytime, but definitely should be on your radar right now if they haven't already been completed. Uh, the first step is to review processes and policies already in place, revisit what was done in the prior year. And, you know, I always recommend documenting things in writing for consistency purposes. We only do this once every year. Um, but uh, we want to make sure that anyone that comes behind us could pick up in the event of turnover. 
Secondly, do a review of the accounting softwares that you utilize. Uh, this is going to include both AP systems and payroll systems, gain an understanding of what information is available, how reports need to be run, uh, et cetera. Thirdly, uh, actually take a look up at, uh, a look at your setup of your vendors and other potential recipients. Make sure you have all the information required, including their names, address, TIN, entity type. And the best way to do this is through those uh, utilizing the form W-9. Um, here's, oh, sorry. Here's a screenshot of that W-9. Um, I really recommend that you send this out to every single vendor that you use. Um, this is how you know what kind of entity you're dealing with and which determines or not whether or not you have to do an information return. Um, it's really difficult when you're scrambling to get all of these in January um, at filing time. There are actually potential penalties for someone who receives a request for a Form W-9 and that they don't properly complete and return it. Um, but if a recipient doesn't provide that TIN, leave the box blank um, and go ahead and file. Don't, don't not don't go down the path of not filing because you don't have the, the appropriate TIN. And then you have to go back to, um, you'll get a notice from the IRS, then you'll have to send out those B notices, et cetera. Um, some additional tasks that we can do between now and the end of the year. Um, IRS instructions are already available, especially for those continuous use forms. Again, there's no significant changes. Um, so, you know, just getting educated and back up to speed. Uh, one thing I ask my accounting to staff to do here at AGH every year is to take a prelim run through their client vendors and payments to determine if there's any actions that we can take now rather than in January, like getting W-9s. Um, just as a reminder, run a list of all payments for the year by vendor. That gets us our entire population. Uh, mark off any of the vendors that aren't required. Get rid of those exceptions. If you're doing this preliminary review before you're in, don't look at those thresholds yet as you may have some payments that are going to go out between now and the end of the year. Um, this is also another place to check to make sure you're using proper names and that you have addresses and TIN. Sometimes when we're doing a, a, a new vendor, it's really easy just to, you know, do a quick setup or, um, you know, just put the name in there or something to get check out the door, but we really need to make sure that we've got all the underlying information in there as well. Um, this final list of tasks is usually done after your end. Uh, IRS uses a FIRE system for their electronic filing. That's an acronym for filing information returns electronically. Uh, if you're required or just choose to file electronically, uh, Publication 1220 is a really good resource out there. Um, New FIRE users who don't already have a secure access username, password, have to authenticate that and set up a new account. Uh, this year, they're, they're revamping everything, so everybody has to have a new account as well. So make sure that you're jumping on that and not waiting until January in that. Um, also, make sure you check with your individual states to test their file requirements. Our largest state that we file with here is Kansas. That's where we're located. Most of our clients are. Um, and they do have the ability to send a test file through the Kansas Department of Revenue's website. Um, you know, if you're filing electronically, make sure that you check for the confirmation of good filing uh, and not just assume that it's all good. You kind of have to check back and make sure that that's there. 
Now, after all that, if the actual filing process seems too overwhelming, you can always um, call us and, and we can help do that electronic filing for you. So the very final um, area I want to cover today is just some common errors and best practices, and we've talked about some of these already. Um, duplicate filings. If be careful if you if you're filing electronically and you need to make a correction or an additional filing, you know if you send that entire file again, you've just made a duplicate filing. So we only want to send in the corrections or the um, the amendments uh, or the additions. Another common error is when the filer's name, address, TIN on the transmittal form doesn't agree with the name on the underlying information report um, forms. I'm going to jump down there to number four. Uh, again, make sure that you have a, if you're filing in paper, you have a separate 1096 for each type of form that you're sending out there. Um, IRS is saying that a lot of people, a lot of organizations are just sending in one transmittal with all the different types underneath it. Um, the IRS instructions state that we should be using a decimal point with cents. Now, those cents can be zero, but something needs to be after that decimal point. Um, and lastly, then, uh, our incom incorrectly completed Form W-9s. So uh, a common error relates to disregarded entities. So remember, for a single member LLC that's disregarded as an entity separate from its owner, you need to use the owner's name only on the first name line and the LLC's name on the second name line. So you want the end taxpayer um, as the first line. For the recipient's identification number, use the owner's social security number or if they have a TIN. Um, if the LLC is taxed as a corporation or partnership, enter the EIN of that entity. Another good reason to make sure that you have a properly completed Form W-9. Um, it's also really confusing to the owners of most of those disregarded entities as well. So it's a good practice just to double check and ask a question if it looks weird. Lastly is a list of uh, best practices to follow. Um, again, solicit that information using the appropriate forms. Utilize the IRS TIN matching program. That's the biggest thing is, um, you know, just not having names and numbers that match. Uh, gain a good understanding of the 1099-related features of your internal software and use them to their full capacity so you're not doing things manually. Review both your payroll and your AP systems looking for duplicate or additional payees. Uh, take some training. Uh, this is a good start today. Uh, review your electronic data file for reasonableness. Don't just assume what spits out of your system is right because, um, you know, if it's not mapped right, it's going to come out wrong. Um, some of the notices I've seen have um, could have been avoided if someone would have just kind of viewed that uh, viewed that data file to notice that maybe an incorrect field was picked up. So again, um, I want to arm you with re useful resources. These have already been mentioned earlier, but I want to put them uh, back up here again. And the forms and construction instructions can all be found on the IRS's website. And so you can download these um, and be able to look at that. Um, I really want to thank you for joining joining me today. I know we kind of went through everything really quickly, um, but I hope you are able to enjoy the holidays and that you have a great filing season.